Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been able to be up here, but it was a nice break. I sure appreciate Randy Pope challenging us from the book of Numbers and this theme that we have of, of by faith. Um, most of us have experienced a new start in life. At some point, maybe several new starts. Uh, it might be a, a move from one city to another. Most of you are not from the Palm Bay, Melbourne area. You moved here from somewhere else, and it, it showed a new start, a new phase of your life. Maybe it's a move to a new job uh, where you go from you know, Harris to Rockwell and begin new responsibilities with new bosses and new things, or a new phase of life. Catherine and I are in that as we are, are preparing for a wedding and all the fun that's enjoyed that is a part of that type of thing. Our passage this morning represents a new start in human history. When we were last in Genesis, before Christmas, we, were, we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel in the first part of chapter 11. Humanity, you know, God had destroyed the world in a flood because of its deep sin. Uh, after the flood, what does humanity do? It continues to sin and rebel and continue to devolve 
and decline and worship self. And this culminated in the Tower of Babel. In chapter 11, you see humanity gathering together in one place to build a house of worship, a temple of worship, and that worship was to be directed at themselves. They were elevating themselves to godlike status, creating their own religion and a God after their own way. And we see in this chapter the result of that. God disperses the nations and the peoples, and there's this migration that takes place across the continents uh, filling out nation groups as we know them today, Greece and Egypt and, and uh, Italy and all these different places, right? You actually read of this migration in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 10. And the story of the Tower of Babel is kind of a, a postscript to that genealogy of the nations explaining why all these people dispersed the way they did. And so that's where we left off before you know, Christmas time with that understanding of what was going on. Well, what you've seen during that period is how human history had continued to go the way of the seed of the serpent. Remember that, that terminology? In the Garden of Eden, you have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this promise that God gave to humanity that one day there would come someone who would undo the, the fall of man and the sin that was a result of that and restore the earth and make all things new. But unfortunately, the story of humanity more resembled the testimony of the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman. You don't find people in all of these genealogies who are clearly dedicated to the worship of God. And so in chapter 11, you think, well, maybe this is the family because after the Tower of Babel, you have Shem. He was one of the sons of Noah. There was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Clearly Ham and Japheth, seed of the serpent. Shem is gonna be the seed of the woman. It's his family line that's gonna hold the banner high. Uh-uh, you don't see it in his genealogy. And so by the time we get to where we are in chapter 11, it's clear that a new start is needed with humanity. But this time, God does not have a new start by destroying all of humanity. Instead, he chooses to make a new start through this man, Abraham. And it's through Abraham and his life and his descendants that ultimately the promises of God will come true that he made to the guard in the Garden of Eden. For the next several weeks, we're going to be in a series of messages entitled, The Gospel According to Abraham. And this morning's message is labeled, A New Start. And we're going to take this passage and we're going to organize it and study it according to three categories. And if you'd like to take notes, this is your opportunity to get a sermon outline, okay? We're first going to look at a new call, and then we will transition to a new covenant, and we will close out before we take communion together this morning with a new claim. Let's begin in verse 31 with a new call, Tara took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, when you look at this call that God has upon 
Abram's life, the very first thing we have to notice is how incredibly gracious it is. Clearly, Abram or Abraham, Abram means esteemed father. His name is going to be changed to Abraham, the father of multitudes. And we're going to just stick with Abraham. Otherwise, I'll become schizophrenic at some point, okay? So, you know, clearly Abraham is an important, significant person. And, and we may not realize it right away, but the original audience would have. Because when you look at the genealogies in the Old Testament, for example, when you go from Adam to Noah, you'll see that Noah is the 10th son listed. When you go from Shem to Abraham, you'll find that he is the 10th son listed. The original audience would have picked up on this. Ah, 10th guy, he's important. And, and there were more than 10 sons. If you, if you look at the genealogies of chapter 10, there were many more sons than 10 between Shem and Abraham. But this is a literary device to help the reader to know this guy is important. Now, he's not important because he was inherently good and righteous. That somehow in the, the line of Shem, that seed of the woman had been preserved. And here's your shining example. Here's Abraham living in Ur, and he's a righteous dude. Not at all. In fact, the opposite is the case. He's a pagan. His family is clearly pagan. They are worshiping the God that was devoted, uh, that the city of Ur was devoted to. It's the moon god. And, and ironically, the moon god's name in the Akkadian language of that era was the name Sin. How's that for irony, right? Now, for those of you who are grandmas in the Mesopotamian, Sumerian language, it's Nana. So if your kids call you Nana, they're calling you the moon goddess. How's that, okay? But they are clearly pagan. Uh, the, the wife of Abram and the wife of his brother, uh, they're, 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 they're born within the family. Sarah is, is Abraham's half-sister. Uh, the other woman is the niece in the family. And they are named after the consorts of the moon god, Sin. So this is a family that's, that's pagan. And, and we know this even more because of the revelation of God's word. Joshua, when he was giving his farewell address to the children of Israel, uh, many centuries later, says... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods, right? So here you have a situation that there's the family line of Shem. This is the seed of the woman, the one who is supposed to be true to God, and yet they aren't. They're worshiping pagan gods they're thoroughly corrupted by sin. And to make matters worse, this line of Shem, the line of Seth, and then that seed of the woman, it's about to come to an end. They're corrupted by sin. They're pagan false uh, idol worshipers, false God worshipers, and Sarah's barren. Family line's about to end, die out. We're done with the seed of the woman. The line of Seth, the line of Shem comes to a screeching halt. Now what? That's what's on the horizon. But God steps in. He shows up, he hits the reset button, and he begins a new start. We read about how this happened in the book of Acts. Stephen, 
first martyr of the church, as he's preaching that sermon that would so enrage that crowd, says these words, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Could you pick up on the language of these verses? There's some important words and phrases that Stephen deliberately says. The the, the God of glory appeared to Abram. The God of glory said to him, God removed him from there into this land. When it comes to the call of Abraham, it's all due to the grace of God, the goodness of God. There is nothing in Abraham in and of himself that merits this kind of call. We're at a low ebb of the seed of the woman. And it's at this point that God does not forget his promises to humanity made in the garden. And he intervenes and he takes this childless married couple who's worshiping a false God. He puts their call, his call onto their lives and that changes everything. God's calls because of his grace, this incredible grace. God's call on Abraham's life was also thoroughly radical. Consider, for example, the nature of the call. He says, Abraham, get up and go. Where? I'll tell you later. <laughs> I mean, how would you like that kind of call, right? I mean, he, he just completely expects him to listen and obey. He doesn't give him any detailed instructions. That's the nature of the call. It's also very demanding because he expects Abraham to completely, wholeheartedly commit his life to God and surrender his life to him for his use and his will. No strings attached, no bargaining, no conditions. Go. You're mine. This call is now put upon you. So to have this very incredible demand upon him, he, he listens to it, to his credit. Somehow, I guess he talks to Tara and his dad and says, hey, I've heard from God. Okay. And, they talk, and so they begin this migration, but they go from Ur to Haran. And folks, this was not a huge step of faith. Okay. Haran was the other great city in, the, in that region, it was just like Ur, it was strong military, it was secure, it was financially prosperous, and it too was devoted to the worship of the moon goddess and the god. So they're just, basically they're going from Orlando to Jacksonville, okay? And keeping their football allegiances, okay? That's, that's what's going on here. And life is good in Haran. They prosper there. The family is settled. It feels like Florida. Yeah, I've moved from one part of Florida to another part of Florida. And, and life is going well. And they settle down. And then Terah dies. And the, the, the call of God upon Abraham at this point becomes more demanding, more insistent, more strident. The New King James kind of captures the language a little bit better. It says this in verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country. 
Get yourself, literally, get yourself out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Literally, he says to Abraham, leave by yourself if necessary. That's what the word means. If if nobody else in your family wants to go, that's fine. But you and Sarah, go. And again, I'm not going to tell you where, just go. Leave everything behind. Leave all the comforts of your family, the security of your, uh, of your city and your career and everything that is known to you and go. This is a demanding call, right? It's radical in its demands, but it's also radical in its results. We may look at this call and say, man, that's kind of harsh. Why would God expect him to do that? I mean, uproot everything, and if necessary, just abandon his family and his career and his means of making a living and going to a different country. He doesn't even know where. I mean, he could have sent him out in the middle of the desert for all he knew, right? This is harsh, but we have to understand something here. Let's recognize what God is doing and what it accomplishes. What he's doing is he's putting Abraham through the fire. And by putting him through that test in this time of of stress and tribulation, he's stripping away all the allegiances that Abraham had to other gods or his own idols or his own abilities, and it's forcing him to live by faith. And that faith will continue to grow until he becomes the paragon of living by faith and the father of God's chosen people, church. Let's recognize something this morning. God's call on us is no less gracious and radical than the the call that God put upon Abraham. God's call on us is both gracious and radical at the same time. Consider for just a moment, right? That the Bible tells us like Abraham, we start out as idolaters. We are on team serpent, not on team seed of the woman. That's how we start. We're sinners corrupted thoroughly, radically by sin. We, we sang that song a little earlier and, and Paxson mentioned it, you know, he turns graves into gardens and bones into armies. That's just not po- poetical, sing-songy musical lyrics. Those are phrases from the Old Testament that God uses to describe our spiritual state. We're skeletons, we're dead, we're just bones, no life within us. But then he calls. And we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins and he calls us to life. The bones become an army for God through this call that he pours out upon us. And he does it not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious and he has a plan for our lives. But it's also radical. As gracious as it is, it's radical. Don't forget the words of Jesus that help us to understand the nature of this call. If you want to be my disciple, you must be willing to leave your what? Father and mother and your country, and your brothers and sisters, and take up the cross and follow me. Be willing to lay your life down. The call upon us is just as radical as the call upon Abraham. Because God is calling us to complete, 
utter abandonment to him and surrender of our lives to him, laying it down for his use and his disposal. So we have a new call. And in verse two of chapter 12, beginning there, we have a new covenant. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In these verses, we get our first introduction to something that is known as the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God will make with Abram and which we will study more when it's formally instituted in a, in a few chapters from now. But here we get our first glimpse of what God is going to do through his covenant with Abraham. And the first chapter is interesting, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in that portion of primeval history that we studied before Christmas, you find God cursing sin and sinners five times. Here, in the beginning of chapter 12, in these two verses, God signals a new start by pronouncing a five-fold blessing upon Abraham, the opposite of what's happened in the first 11 chapters. So, for example, you see him saying, I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor or who curse you. And I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. Just for a moment, let's think about it. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What would you think if you had heard this from God? What would you think? Now, before you answer that question, let's, let's remember we've all had new starts in our lives, right? Uh, some of you guys have gone from Harris to Rockwell or from Rockwell to Harris. Some of you ladies have gone from one career to another career. You went from being unmarried to married or from married to divorce. You went from one city and uprooted everything to another city. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, do you remember the stress that was involved, the, the doubt that you had? Is this the right thing that we should do? Do you remember if you were a Christian, how you probably spent hours agonizing, praying over this, asking God to give you some kind of sign, and you did all kinds of wacky things trying to discern whether this is really what God wants us to do, right? So before we jump on the bandwagon here, he goes, wow, this is, this is fantastic. Understand what, a, what God was calling Abram to do was much, much more severe than leaving Harris to go to Rockwell for maybe a better job and a signing bonus. Because he's leaving everything that he knows. He's starting a new chapter. And he doesn't have the option of staying in the same house or staying in the same region with all of his friends and his family and his support network. He has to leave all of this behind and trust only in these promises. That's all he had. His entire safety network is taken away from him. His entire planning for how to provide and survive and, and have the, the unity of more people to protect against invasion, that's all gone. He's hitting the road. He's traveling into 
strange lands that are filled with a warlike people. And he, and he doesn't have an army with him. <laughs> this is intimidating. Dr. Ian Duguid. How, do you, how would you like to have that for your last name, right? Duguid. Dr. Ian Duguid is a, is a professor at Westminster Theological in Philadelphia. He's written a wonderful book on the life of Abraham, and it's called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And it's about living by faith, because living by faith is essentially living in the gap between what our world actually currently is and what God has promised us, right? That gap living between what we experience in our current reality and what we know God is going to do in our lives and do in this world at some point, that dissonance, that difference, that gap, living for God in that period, that's living by faith. And so for some of us this morning, we're relying upon the promises of God for our, for our marriage to become what we want it to be. But our reality right now does not match the promises of God. And that, that gap, living in that gap, requires living by faith. You heard Randy last week in, one, in his message talking about Christians and our commitment to the kingdom of God through our finances. And so we trust God's promises for our finances, but yet what he promises in our current reality, there's a gap there and, and we're called to live in that gap. That's what living by faith is. Some of us, we're, we're trusting the promises of God to overcome sin. And the reality, the daily reality of our lives looks very different than the, the promises that we see in Scripture. That difference is living in the gap. That's living by faith. And so in his book, Dr. Duguid says about Abraham, there are fundamental obstacles along the road to the fulfillment of each promise. How can sinners enjoy God's blessings? How can an elderly and barren couple have descendants? How can a handful of people possess a land that's already occupied by others? From a human perspective, the obstacles seem insuperable. But as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, unfolds, it becomes clear that nothing can stand in the way of the purposes of the sovereign and omnipotent God who called heaven and earth into being out of nothing. Nothing can stand in the way and thwart the purposes of our sovereign God. And church, the same is true for you. Our God has called us from death to life. The bones have become a living flesh. And through his grace, he's called us to him and given us faith so that we can believe. And he tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus to be his workmanship, to accomplish the good works which he has ordained before the creation of the world for us to fulfill. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. This is his call. This is his plan. This is his purpose at the high level for every one of us who claims the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the good news is that absolutely nothing can thwart this purpose in our lives because we are worshiping and serving the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe. And every one of those promises that we look to 
While our reality right now may not exactly be what those promises say will one day be, that gap that we're living in right now, the testimony of Abraham's life and of Scripture, is that ultimately God brings about every single one of these promises. And that's why we look to someone like this, like Abraham. Yes, the call on his life is radical, but it's gracious. It calls for absolute commitment and surrender of his life. But by calling for that, at the same time, God provides Abraham, God provides us with all kinds of incredible promises where he swears to us by his own holy character what he will bring about in our lives. And that motivates that step of faith to answer that call. So we have a new call, we have a new covenant, and finally this morning, we have a new claim. Verses four to nine, I'm not gonna read them all. They, they basically say this, that Abraham, he starts going about the land, right? And he goes from north to south, and he, and he shows well, you know, a, a, a pattern here. And, and he goes to these different places, this land that's filled with the Canaanites, a warlike people, strong nations. He's the outsider. And at certain places, from the north to the south, he stops. And he builds an altar, and he begins to worship God at each of those locations. And what you find in these locations is each of them was a site of pagan worship. It was a, a holy site in the land of Canaan where the Canaanites would gather and they would worship their gods. And so Abraham, as he's making his way through Canaan from north to south, he stops at Shechem, he stops at Bethel, he stops in the Negev and he builds altars and he worships. What's he doing here? Is he just trying to poke the bear, you know? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's staking God's claim on this land and he's making it evident and he's taking a step of faith saying all of this land from north to south, while it may be worshiping other gods, they, it actually belongs to the one true God, Jehovah. John Calvin in this passage, and to paraphrase them, he says essentially what's happening here is that Abraham is dedicating Canaan to God. He's dedicating the entire land to God. And what he's essentially doing is he's perfuming it with the odor of his faith, which will one day be the dominant faith of this, of this land. This portion of scripture, the aspect of the story, you have to ask, why, why did the author include it? And it's important. It's, this aspect of the story is important, for example, to the, to the Israelites who are looking at going into the, Palestine. They're on the banks of the Jordan River. Their ancestors have died off. They're about to begin the conquering and conquest of it. And they look at this story and they can see how Abram goes from the north when he comes in a, and he goes to Shechem and Bethel and the Negev and, and he does all of these things and he reads these promises to your offspring. I will give this land and he builds altars and worship. And this sets a pattern for what the Israelites themselves will do when they enter into the land. And they go from north to south, conquering the land, claiming it for their God, because they are the descendants of Abraham, and they trust in the promises of God, and they claim it the way they are to, intended to. But this portion of Scripture is bigger 
than just the original audience. It's also important to us and our understanding of the gospel and the bigger work that God is actually starting in this passage. Verse seven is particularly important in this passage. It says, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The original audience, those Israelites in the Jordan River, they hear offspring and they think, hey, that's us. And so we can go in and we can conquer this land and we can take it over. And they do, they find that everything that God promises is fulfilled, but it's not ultimately consummated with them. And then their generations after them and their descendants, they go off the reservation. And you come to the book of Judges where every man is doing right that which is right in his own eyes and ultimately their apostasy is so great that God will send them into exile and disperse them around all the nations because of the way their descendants will break the covenantal promises. They were supposed to be a beachhead This land was to be a beachhead in the conquest for the kingdom of God, but sadly, they would reject God's covenantal promises. They would reject God's covenantal stipulations, and the result is they're dispersed. So this promise, this this verse does not find its fulfillment ultimately in those Israelites who are standing on the Jordan River. But God doesn't forget this promise. And we read something very interesting. Remember that, remember that quote from Dr. Duguid? Nothing can stand in the way of the omnipotent, the purposes of the sovereign and omnipotent God who called heaven and earth into being out of nothing. At the appointed time, God calls a better, another Abraham to leave his place of comfort and security. And what you find in the New Testament which helps us to understand better the Old Testament, you find these great verses that are quoting from Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three and seven. You see in chapter three, the scriptures, Paul says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but it refers to one, and to your offspring, who is, say the name with me, Christ, Christ. Understanding the greater truth, the good news, the gospel of what God is promising to Abraham makes us better understand and appreciate communion, the Lord's table. You think about that word for a moment, communion. It implies relationship, doesn't it? This, this meal is meant for those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a family relationship like, you know, that you inherit through your family and your family's always Christian, so you must be Christian. No, it's a relationship that is real, that is radical, that involves you trusting Christ, taking up the cross, following him. This meal is meant for those who have a real personal relationship with Jesus, who have turned their life over to him and confessed their sins and received him as Lord and Savior. If that, this is you, you're invited to this communion meal this morning. 
But if you've yet to do that, this communion meal is meant to prod you, to poke you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to turn from yourself, to turn from whatever temple of worship that you've constructed in your own life and instead reject it and embrace Jesus Christ. And today, you can do this. If you have questions about how and what this involves, I hope you'll see me. You'll see some of our spiritual advisors after the church over to my right in the care area. We'd love to talk to you more. But this morning, this meal isn't for you because you don't have that kind of communion with God through Jesus Christ. Communion implies relationship. Communion also implies fellowship. That things are right between, you know, I have good communion with this person. That means there's not something in my relationship with them that's interfering with our fellowship, right? And, and this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says these words. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. In other words, this is a holy communion. This is a sacrament. Jesus, through the Spirit, is here with us, communing with us. And we are strengthened in that communion as we feed upon him spiritually and he enlivens us and makes us stronger and more vibrant. Listen, for that to happen, we must treat this meal for what it is. It's holy. It's sacred. And you don't come to your normal meals with dirty hands and dirty face. You wash up, don't you? Or at least you're supposed to if your mama raised you right. Okay? And we don't do that with this meal either. So let's take a moment and let's bow our heads. And let's pray and let's talk to God and let's confess any sin that maybe we're holding on to, a grudge or something that we are delighting in other than Christ. And let's confess this to our Heavenly Father and be cleansed through the blood of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we call upon you and we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of all sin. You separated as far as the east is from the west because it has been placed under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So your children come to you this morning. We confessed our sin to you, that we are not naturally worthy to take this meal, but because we are in you through Christ, we may eat and drink of it and we may delight in being joined with you through this fellowship meal. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let me give you a couple of instructions. There is underneath your seat one of these plastic containers. If you will go ahead and there's a couple of layers to it. Um, you know, the little top layer is the bread. And you kind of got to peel that away, take the bread. And then there's another layer that gives you the drink. Before we take it together, let me read these words of institution. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 
took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, take and eat. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to the cross and dying for our sins. We thank you that you called us to life. You radically inserted yourself into our existence. Otherwise, we would still be serving self and sin and Satan. But you changed us. And we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the sacrifice that like Abram, you were called out of the comfort and the security of your home in heaven. And you took on a destiny that was filled with trial and tribulation. And you did it so that you could call us friends and brothers and sisters and glorify our heavenly Father. Thank you for your obedience. Empower us to live for you, to be your ambassador this week. May we honor your name in our lives and in our words. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.